Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up, you'll be hearing some comments about the good capacities that fathers possess from author and pediatrician Meg Meeker, providing words of encouragement for dads. Then from Saddleback Church and Celebrate Recovery, insight from Johnny Baker discussing aspects of freedom in Christ. Also, you'll be hearing from Susan Sosby. She and her sister, who live quite a distance apart, had the challenge of providing care for their mother during her final days. She provides direction and encouragement for those facing these types of challenges. Also from Mission Eurasia, you'll be hearing from Wally Kulikov discussing how that ministry is using the World Cup soccer tournament as a means to share the gospel. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, turning to film, some comments from the writer and director of Paul, Apostle of Christ, highlighting certain aspects of the life of the great teacher of biblical truth. You'll be hearing from Andrew Hyatt. Plus, insight ahead from psychologist and author Greg Jantz, who, in light of recent high-profile suicides, provides some commentary about one of the contributing factors to suicide, depression. Finally, Brian Jennings is a minister who desires to see a greater injection of peace with truth into the times of tension that seem to characterize our culture. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Meg Meeker is an author, pediatrician, podcaster, and former co-host of Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. She has a desire to see fathers walk in their roles according to their capacity, which is a capacity that Christian dads can activate. She's written the book entitled You've Got This, Unlocking the Hero Dad Within, This is Meg Meeker. Well, I will tell you, on one hand, I think that dads have never worked harder. Dads have never gotten better at something. What I see going on in dads in real life is that they are really stepping up to the plate and by and large doing a fabulous job. But here's the problem. Encouragement for dads is terribly lacking. And there's a tremendous amount of dad shaming going on that is so insidious. We see it in television, sitcoms, movies, and the sense that our culture thinks it's hysterical to look at dads as the butt of the jokes of in every in the family. And we have, if you will, quote unquote, empowered mothers and empowered women and, you know, come to the aid of so many single mothers, which is great. The problem is, in the middle of that, we've shoved dads aside, and they are the critical element in the success and happiness in any child's life. So my mission, if you will, is to really speak to every dad out there and say, you know what, you've got this, you don't think you do, but you do, and I need to help you let the greatness in you as a dad just let it out. Well, you mentioned this phrase, and I wanted to, or this word, I wanted to to ask you just a bit about it. When you talk about dad shaming and the the image that is being portrayed with respect to men these days, what do you see as the root causes of that? You know, I think it's a it's a um, it's a movement, if you will, um, an activity that's been growing, particularly over the past twenty years. It's gained a lot of momentum. And I think the root of that was that women back in the 70s, I was there, I went to an all-women's college in the 70s, said, you know, we're tired of sort of um, uh, not being able to compete. We're tired of sort of being put down, if you will. And so, you know, feminism took root and it took off. And while some good things happened, a lot of bad things happened. 
And I think as we began to hyper-focus on women and women's empowerment, at the same time, rather than building up men alongside, we put them down, feeling that it was an either-or situation. And you can't believe the hate mail I get from women because there's a sense out there that if you encourage dads, you're necessarily putting women down. It's like our culture can't handle both simultaneously. You put women up, you move men down. You move men up, you put women down. And this is totally unbiblical and it's totally wrong. And so I think that when that took hold, then Hollywood said, oh, there's a lot of money to be made in making fun of dads. And then it really took off. As you point out from what I perceive, that there are men who are are suffering from somewhat of an inferiority complex with respect to their their God-given abilities as and their roles as husbands and fathers. How do you see that men can actually step out of that and embrace the the roles that they are called to perform? Well, first of all, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that the majority, unfortunately, and this is my experience, I've seen thousands of kids grow up and talk to thousands of dads, the majority of fathers uh, feel they're not doing a good enough job, and they feel pushed aside in their families, and they don't know what to do. And here's my encouragement to them, and particularly men of faith. This is pretty sobering. One of my chapters is called, God is called Father, and so are you. God of heaven and earth who created the world, who created every tiny cell in our bodies, in our hair, in our minds, chose to share a name, not with mothers, but with fathers. And if that doesn't speak to men and say, this is who you are, claim it, step into that with all of the responsibility, but all the joy that is there you know what greater if you will empowerment or unleashing of fathers can you have other than sharing a name with the creator of the universe you know that's a privilege i don't have as a mom and i have an incredible life as a mother and a grandmother and a physician but my husband is his child's dad and for through every child's eyes, because we all know this, we all were kids and we all had a dad, we know what that means. Meg Meeker here on The Intersection. Her website is megmeekermd.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Johnny Baker. His parents founded Celebrate Recovery. He's been pastor of Celebrate Recovery at Saddleback Church in Southern California since 2012. He discussed principles he relates in the book, The Road to Freedom, Healing from Your Hurts, Hang-Ups, and Habits. From a recent conversation, this is Johnny Baker. Yes, yeah, so Silver Recovery is a, is a Christ-centered 12-step ministry is the easiest way to describe it. And really, it's based on the words of Jesus. And that's what's so important. There's one higher power. You know, if you go to traditional recovery, uh, which, by the way, is great. I have no problem with, with traditional or secular recovery. I think it's a really important tool. But one of the, the drawbacks there is that I can pick my higher power, and I can name it whatever I want. Well, in Silver Recovery, that higher power is Jesus. And we know that He is the way to healing us, not just giving us sobriety, but giving us recovery and, and healing us and freeing us 
from those issues that trip us up and hold us back and keep us from running the race that he's got designed for us. And so it is a step-by-step program. And really the secret is it's a spiritual growth program. It, it's for anybody. You know, the Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means we all have hurts. Most of us have hangups and a lot of us have habits. And so what we want to do is help people look at those things in a real way, deal with them as they really are, and find freedom from those things. And that's what Jesus promises us when he says that he wants to give us a full and abundant life. And so that's really what Celebrate Recovery does. It helps us look at our lives in a clear way, deal with some of those things from our past or even our present, or some of those worries we have in the future, and then we can put them where they belong in the hands of God, and we can grow from those things. Well, Celebrate Recovery has ministered to some 3.9 million people in over 29,000 churches all over the world. Johnny, you're doing something right, obviously. This you know, is... I, think, I think they're on to something. You know, it's been such a joy to, to serve with my parents in this way and to see so many lives change and, you know, for one of those lives to be my own. And uh, to see those things happen in a day-to-day basis is really exciting. It's just something that I, I will be doing for the rest of my life. How does one know if he or she would be a candidate, if you will, for Celebrate Recovery? Well, you mentioned you've got Pastor Rick's messages on uh, on your radio station now. And one thing Pastor Rick says often is there are two kinds of people in the world, those who know they need recovery and those who are in denial. <laughs> and so <laughs> the reality of it is, is that we can all use recovery. Now, some people are going to maybe just go through it for a little while, and they're, they're going to complete a study and learn from that and go forward. And other people, uh, like myself, are going to be in the program for life, and we're going to keep digging into do- new areas of my life. But really, I think – uh, to, to be real, you know, serious about it for a minute. I, I think if if there's somebody listening and, and you feel like there's a part of my life that's out of control or it's causing me pain, uh, maybe it's a, another person or a relationship, maybe it is an addiction, maybe it's something from my past, or it's something that I just, every night I pray and I say, God, please take this away from me, and I I'm, I'm, keep coming up against it. I would encourage you to check out a Celebrate Recovery in your area. And a, a great way to do that is to go to CelebrateRecovery.com. There's a place to find a group there. Uh, you can put in your zip code or, you know, search a couple of different ways and find a church that does Celebrate Recovery near you and, and check it out. It might take a couple of times uh, to feel to feel like it's for you. But, um, you know, if you're listening to this, you just feel like, man, there's something's got to change. I think that's a good way to know that that you're ready to try something new, and and maybe Celebrate Recovery is a good idea for you. Well, you've written this book called The Road to Freedom. Tell me why you felt like that, well, now was the time to write this book. Yeah, you know, I there like you said earlier, I've been in Celebrate Recovery since it begun in one way or another, and uh, there were... Um, there were things uh, that I've learned in Celebrate Recovery over the years that apply not just to those of us who are in recovery, but I believe to all areas of life. And um, as I began thinking about those lessons and that, I, that I've learned, I just kept thinking, man, I, I think people need to hear this. And uh, it kind of became a thing where as I sat in front of my computer to start running, uh, to start writing, I mean, it just felt like it just came pouring out of me. And it just felt like uh, something I needed to do now. And there, there are 10 things that uh, there are many more, but these 10 life lessons I've learned over the course of my recovery journey are things that I think are going to help people, whether or not they ever step foot into a Celebrate Recovery meeting. Johnny Baker here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website CelebrateRecovery.com. Well, Susan Sosby is the author of the book, Bringing Mom Home, How Two Sisters Moved Their Mother Out of Assisted Living and Cared for Her Under One Amazingly Large Roof. She shared with me from her own personal experience how she and her sister cared for their mom, who had contracted dementia during the final days of her life. 
Here now is Susan Sosby. How did God orchestrate this? <laughs> okay, so I was homeschooling my kids. I graduated my last child uh, in 2013. And then I felt that maybe God was calling me to move out to California. I was deeply involved in my church. Um, and I also was teaching a Bible study for uh, Chinese nationals. And I needed to, I've, it's one of those things where I felt maybe God was telling me to do this, but I really needed to be sure. So um, I began to work my way out of some of the activities I was doing at the same time, asking God, I'm not going to say anything to my kids. I'm not going to say anything to my sister about this idea of me moving out to California and taking care of mom under one, you know, as one family. Let my sister, first of all, let my sister come up with the idea herself. And second, let my kids volunteer without me asking them that they would think it's okay for me to leave them in New Jersey while I go to California. And that happened. So, and then I felt even as I was closing in on this date, this moving date, which was January, 2014, I started to get cold feet and I said, God, I don't usually play Bible roulette, but you know, could you please confirm your word for me? Opened up my Bible at random and there was the passage that says, uh, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. So I thought, okay, hmm. that's it. You know, I know I'm supposed to go and I went. What did you learn from it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I feel a little embarrassed you're talking about <laughs> the sacrifices because I don't feel that. I feel like God, it was like God sort of mm. opened up a big oaken door and ushered me in. Wow. A place that was different than what I had expected, but still was a good place. And I mean that literally in the sense that I was living in a very nice place with people who loved me. I had friends who were in New Jersey who were supportive. I had extended family who were supportive. Uh, we had enough money because my mother had squirreled away a whole bunch of money. Um, I And we had hospice care. Um, we have had and have so many uh, privileges that I felt that what God was asking me was just not all that much. And then on top of it, I learned to love my mother. It was something that I didn't think I needed to learn how to do because I figured I did that pretty well already. And God took me aside and he showed me very gently that no, I didn't, I, I hadn't nailed that one. And I was up against a wall because while I was able to do things for my mother, anything that I could will myself to do, I did. But when it came to my heart, being sympathetic and loving and kind, um, I was I was failing. And I never would have known that if I hadn't moved in and been more or less forced to deal with my mother's difficult position and difficult illness where she was at that time, I was also remembering the things she had done for me and the things that I had done to her and how I had taken her for granted and how I had judged her. The bottom line was that I had judged her and I had thought that she kind of brought it on herself because of the way that she was living. Uh, you know, not a terrible way, but I don't think she took very good care of herself. But that just became moot 
it became moot because God's call was for me to love my mother and I was failing and all I could do was cry out to him and say, please, please, please change my heart. And I had to be in the same room with her for him to get down in there and change my heart. And as I, as he changed my heart and I began to walk in obedience to him, um, that was a huge blessing. And then I began to examine my heart in terms of loving other people and not judging other people. And that was a whole big underground cavern that God was just waiting to unearth. And he's still unearthing it. Susan Sosby here on The Intersection. You can find out more at the website susansosby, S-O-E-S-B-E dot com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Wally Kulikoff, Vice President of Ministries and Church Relations for Mission Eurasia. He discussed with me the outreach events that the ministry and its church partners have been involved in, coinciding with the World Cup soccer tournament in Russia. Here now is Wally Kulikoff. The Lord has provided for us over 200 churches, national churches, actually 230 national churches who are interested and want to become involved in evangelism. As you know, evangelism as we know it is prohibited in Russia by the new laws that have been implemented to restrict like uh, activities, extreme activities of uh, of religious groups and so forth. And the evangelical church falls into that group also, where if we want to be involved in helping people to come to know Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, they call that proselytization, and that in Russia is illegal. So the 230 churches have got together and said, why don't we pray and fast for this one month for this event? Uh, you know, previously Russia used to use uh, weddings as an evangelistic tool, uh, funerals as, as an evangelistic tool, uh, birthdays as an evangelistic tool. And now they see this opportunity as, as an opportunity for the church, for the people to receive God's Word and to understand God's wonderful plan for these people. So these 230 churches have agreed to buy a flat-screen television, and when the games are on, live streaming of the games takes place in the church. And those who could not buy a ticket, those who could not go to the event, can walk to the local church, can take a bus to the local church, a tram to the local church, or a subway to the local church, and watch the games. And as they're watching the games, there's tea, there's coffee, there's cookies, there's all kinds of uh, people, and the church has young people who are ready to share their testimony during the interim um, periods. Not only the sh- not only the testimony, but songs and skits and so forth. And then we have the Gospel of John. We have printed hundreds of thousands of Gospels of John, 300,000 just recently and 300,000 before Christmas. So we've got Gospels of John with a QR code on the back. We have New Testaments in the Russian language and some in Russian and English. And there is a QR code, and a person who receives either the Gospel of John, the New Testament, a Bible, or a magazine that we call Light, there is a QR code. They can scan it, they can find answers to difficult questions that young people ask. The plan of salvation is there. And what is so thrilling is that the address or the telephone number is, and the, the directions to the closest evangelical church. We have Google Maps here, but in Russia it's Yandex Maps. 
And so Youngwood's map shows them where is the local church and the closest evangelical church where they have uh, the, um, uh, the flat screen television taking place. So that's one event, flat screen uh, televisions in the church. Bob, there's another thing that's taking place, charging stations with tables of literature. And the young person who charges his phone or iPhone or iPad, he can't do it in one minute. In two minutes, he's got to spend five, ten minutes to just recharge the phone. And here's an opportunity for them to receive also, not, <laughs> not just power for their phones, but power for their souls. There's also the opportunity of water bottles, where they'll be handing out water bottles plus literature. And then many churches are involved in these flash mobs where they have a five-minute presentation in the park. They hand out the Gospels of John. They hand out uh, the New Testaments with the addresses of the local churches, and then they're gone. And so they go to another part of the park, a flash mob, and they do a five-minute presentation, and they're gone to another area. They're gone to another area. And so that's been very, very effective. But the churches are in prayer, fasting and praying for this event. And I'd like to ask American people to also join, maybe one day a week, maybe just five minutes a day, to ask God to prepare men's and women's hearts and young people's and teenagers' hearts that they will receive the Word of God and receive the gospel. Wally Kulikoff here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website missioneurasia.org. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info, or you can find The Meeting House in the programming section at faithradio.org. When you access the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. You can also find the Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more by going to faithradio.org. Also, when you access the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org. Well, Andrew Hyatt is writer and director of the film Paul, Apostle of Christ. In a recent conversation with me, he talked about the concept of the movie and aspects of the life of the Apostle Paul that are portrayed in it. Here now is Andrew Hyatt. This was such a, a major responsibility to come to this story and and to this this unbelievable man, you know, Outside of Christ, one could argue, you know, the most influential, certainly New Testament uh, individual. And, uh, you know, it just, it was a huge responsibility. So we just prayerfully kind of undertook this journey of just wanting to communicate exactly how you, how, how you said it. You know, this, this enormous change, this complete flip of here's the, you know, really the, the father of persecution of the early church uh, in Saul uh, has this major conversion and becomes the greatest evangelizer, you know, still probably to this day. And, you know, in order to kind of capture that, we just, we wanted to humbly put ourselves just, you know, at the foot of the cross and just say, God, you know, can can you do something in people's hearts? Can you show them something that is just going to be beautiful and, and moving? And I really think the film captures that, that conversion in that moment uh, really well. 
How do you believe that the film really addresses these matters with respect to Christians and persecution? Sure, sure. Well, it, it really came through, you know, I, I wish I could have said that, you know, we all sat around early on and said, hey, look at this connection to the, to the early church and the persecuted church of today. But it was really something that came out late, late on, you know, as we were sitting around editing the film and, and in conversation and dialogue uh, with a lot of pastors and and, and priests and rab- even a few rabbis, you know, we were sitting around and, and we were watching this and saying, whoa, that is crazy. This is very, very relevant. A lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are dealing with this exact persecution. And, and, and it was something that just, you know, we were truthful to the gospel, we were truthful to scripture and, and truthful to the moment of history. And, and it is amazing how relevant what the early church uh, went through. Uh, so many of our brothers and sisters today are facing the same uh, type of persecution. Well, let's talk about the man, the Apostle Paul. Of course, we look at him as really someone who was used of the Lord greatly in the establishment of the church. He is someone who the Holy Spirit uses to teach us today. So as we look at the character of the man, as you really sought to to develop his character in this film, what are some of the character traits that really struck you that you wanted to bring out in this film? You know, what a, it's a great question, and one of the main things I really wanted to capture was just the, the authenticity and, and the sort of the grittiness of this man. You know, when we read Scripture and we read his letters and we see, you know, all that he's been through for the faith, you know, all that he's gone through, uh, you know, following Christ, the, the persecutions, as we talked about, the, the, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the, the beatings, the imprisonments, you know, I, I wanted that to come out because I, I've seen other things that dealt with, you know, the apostles and, and with Paul, and I just didn't believe that those were the men that went through uh, the kind of trials that they went through. And I wanted someone to really bring that authenticity and that grittiness, you know, who's who's Paul, you know, who's Paul in our minds when we read this? And it's like, wow, what an incredible journey, what an incredible um, just grit and personality this man must have had, and what a grace from God to to bring this bring this man to the church and and that was what I really wanted to focus on is just somebody that you believed when he stepped on the screen ah yes this is Paul this is someone that has been through what Paul had been through and I think we just what a gift from God to have James Faulkner uh, step into that that was Andrew Hyatt here on the intersection find out more about the film by going to paulmovie.com Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's nationally certified psychologist and licensed mental health counselor Greg Jantz. He discussed some aspects of depression, a relevant topic in light of recent high-profile suicides that have occurred. He's author of the book, Five Keys to Dealing with Depression. This is Greg Jantz now. We're seeing depression. We're seeing uh, untreated depression. We're seeing despair with our youth. And uh, not only is depression an epidemic, but we're seeing... Uh, this despondency that's leading to so many uh, suicides, and uh, we've just have to address this. What would you say would be the the or some of the characteristics, at least, of what would what would characterize a person who is depressed? Well, we know that a person who's depressed um, would do better if they could. There reaches a place, um, and you're just not functioning. There's a heaviness over you that you just can't seem to shake off. There's a sense uh, of pending doom. There's a sense of 
where I don't have the energy to do anything. There's a heaviness. It's a deep fatigue. It feels like it goes deep into your bones, and uh, you, you, you feel this weight. Uh, there's usually sleep disturbances. I can't get enough sleep, or my sleep doesn't feel rested, uh, restful. So there's a combination of symptoms. Sometimes I want to just escape. So maybe I, maybe I drink, maybe I eat. But um, I feel prone towards escapism behaviors. Generally speaking, I don't want to be with anybody, so I end up isolating. So you can see that um, depression really is paralyzing ultimately. As I understand it, Dr. Jantz, you talk about this condition being marked by three characteristics, frequency, severity, and duration. Comment on those elements, if you would, please. Well, we all have a, a down day, or there may be a, a month in our life where we've experienced a loss, or, and we're grieving, and there, there's challenges. Um, and we could say that's depressing. Um, but if we have something that increases in intensity, I'm, I'm not getting over this. The intensity, and it's lasting longer, so that's the duration. Wow, I can't, it's going on and on, and it's been three months, six months, and things are getting worse, and I feel um, this depression is intense. So that's where we're going to find uh, more and more um, at a place of, of just, disability with it because it's not getting better so look at does this happen to me frequently can i get out of it or does it stay with me and what's the intensity well and and let's look at, as we go back to that that whole notion of of suicide obviously people will get to a point of despondency and not necessarily or let, let me ask you this what would you say would be the the regularity of people who have committed suicide actually suffering from depression? Well, we know that if we feel suicidal, the uh, depression has grown so deep, so deep that I've lost my ability to think with any sort of clarity or, or with rational thought. And so this is something that has taken such a stronghold in my life that I, I've, I've lost the ability uh, to really reason, and so I don't see any way out. We've written uh, 37 books, and this is a smaller book, Five Keys to Dealing with Depression, and one of the reasons why is when, when you're depressed, it's like hard to concentrate, right? And so we just wanted to get some, some thoughts to you, some action steps to you, so that you can begin to do a little deeper dive, but this gives you some things, a frame of reference to, to look at. Um, now, we firmly believe there is hope for people suffering from depression. Mm. This is uh, over 30 years, and the center, A Place of Hope, uh, we were actually voted in the top 10 list of uh, best places to go uh, for help for depression by a news organization. And I believe the reason for that is because we believe deeply in the whole person philosophy. Yes, we have to address the emotional, both present and past, and any past hurts and trauma. Uh, we've got to address the spiritual side of our lives. 
And then there's the physical side. Do I have nutrient deficiencies? How's my hormonal levels? Uh, what's going on from a medical vantage point? Uh, and uh, is there brain chemistry imbalances? So we've got to look at the whole person. Greg Jantz here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, aplaceofhope.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Brian Jennings, lead minister of Highland Park Christian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In our conversation, he discussed matters related to culture and civility as he addresses in the book, Dancing in No Man's Land, Moving with Peace and Truth in a Hostile World. This is Brian Jennings. The title draws from a World War I uh, metaphor where uh, when the, the French and Germans were fighting each other in World War I early on in the war, uh, there came a point where both sides literally just dug into the earth, and they both uh, fought from their bunkers and trench- trenches, and it really stalemated the entire war uh, and just drug out for a long time. And if you were in the bunker or trench, you were surrounded by only uh, you know, your people. People would tell you a certain thing. You would have no uh, idea of what all was happening around, because if you even peeked over the top, you know, you were a, a likely casualty. And that area between the two bunkers or trenches became known as no man's land because nobody wanted to go there. There was mines and barbed wire, and you were just exposed if you were out there. And so no man's land was the last place anybody wanted to be. And I was reading through the book of Daniel, and when King Nebuchadnezzar uh, tells all of the wise men in the land they're going to die, he's frustrated. Hmm. He's thrown one of his fits, which he was prone to do. <laughs> and when his hitman his bounty hunter, Ariot, goes up and tells Daniel, hey, you and all the wise men are going to die. Um, I'm thinking, what would I do? You know, I would run for cover. I would amass my troops. I would come up with some sort of strategy. I would fight back, you know, thinking of all the things I might do. And Daniel chapter 214 says that Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. When I, I read that that same week that all these other things were happening, and I thought, man, who in the world responds like that in that kind of a situation? And and I thought, I think Daniel was living in no man's land. And I began to just to read and try to search the scriptures for how Jesus lived in this way where he would pursue truth, but also pursue peace with people. And he would balance those two things without dropping either. And so that's, that began my pursuit. And I, I really began just wanting to figure out how I could live that way of saying that I care about truth, that I care about people, just like Jesus did at the same time. So that's that's kind of the metaphor for no man's land. Well, and you you talked about, and I guess you could say the the analogy or the metaphor here with respect to no man's land. Obviously, that's indicative of the battle lines being drawn, the two sides, and what's in between the two sides. And and I'm real curious, and this may be a little bit of an aside, but I think it makes for some good discussion because we we hear the the metaphor, for instance, culture war. And we also talk mm-hmm. as believers of spiritual warfare. We see Christians who are denigrating one another. We see, obviously, the the worldview that is prevalent, or worldviews that are prevalent within the world outside the church in conflict with the church itself. And we also recognize that there's a spiritual dynamic because we're, the Bible says we don't wage war against flesh and blood. So as you see it as a minister and someone that's that's really addressed this whole topic about really displaying Christ's likeness in the midst of conflict, where are 
where are the battle lines? What's what are the dynamics or the setup of the the different conflicts that we're seeing? What are the root? You know, what's at the root of them? Yeah, uh, what I see is a lot of fear and a lot of a lot of pride, and then a lot of anger. And I, I think that a lot of times, and I'm going to speak kind of pastorally here from the church perspective, we have felt fear as we've seen. Uh, people walk away from the Lord, as we've seen um, people say, well, I don't trust the Bible anymore, and um, maybe take shots at the church. And granted, some of those may have been deserved when uh, we we walked on the wrong path, but, and I also recognize some of them have not been warranted. And I, I think the thing that we have to be real careful about with culture wars, that, that, that term makes me nervous because I agree that we are at war with what the enemy wants to do in our culture. But as soon as I make somebody else uh, my enemy, and I'm saying I'm at war with these people who think differently than me, then the church has really lost its way. And it's, be, it's become harmful and a barrier for people to come and uh, find Jesus. Brian Jennings here on The Intersection. You can find out more at Dancing in No Man's Land. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and the website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can learn more through the Faith Radio website at faithradio.org. Find The Meeting House in the programming section. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. Also, you can find various editions of the podcast in that media center. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. And you can find The Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more at faithradio.org. Plus, when you go to the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.